We're picking up on a theme we've been doing here for quite a while. In fact, it's a 52-week series based upon the Leadership Bible that uh, I was privileged to participate in. There were three of us who put that thing together a few years ago. And as we explored themes of leadership, it emerged that there were three categories of leadership. Personal development skills, so the area of personal development being the character dimension, and that becomes the core What's below the waterline or what's below the earth becomes the real issue, so that what's below is then going to be manifested above. And then the skill development, and then third, uh, relational development. And we're in the area of skill development. We've looked at a variety of skills, things like conflict management, uh, justice, leadership development, uh, learning organization, long-range planning. Today we're going to be looking at the theme of what we call situational leadership, and we're going to be illustrating this in the life of our Lord, and then going to a couple of other passages. In Luke 6, we have the uh, calling of the 12 apostles. And in verse 12, it says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, because he had a large following at that point. And he now had prayed, and he prayed all night long because these would be the leadership men. This would be the people who would now carry this message to the, to the world. And so he, realizing this, made it a matter of genuine prayer and concern. Who are the people now that I'm going to truly invest my life in? Because as you can see from the movement of the Gospels, you move from uh, Jesus ministering to the multitudes... And that begins to diminish relative to Jesus' time with his disciples. And as time goes on then, he begins to focus more and more on those people. As mounting opposition is another one of those themes, knowing that his time is short, he needs to build his life into a handful of of followers. So knowing that then, he, he selects people, but frankly, one would wonder about the wisdom of this choice. Because if you look at these people, these are not impressive men, at least not as the world would define. And frankly, it reminds me of a text that I read from time to time. Anytime we tend to, if we begin to get a little cocky and arrogant, this is a very good medicine. It's found in 1 Corinthians, you can hold your finger in Luke 6 and turn over to the right to 1 Corinthians 1. And you'll find in verse 26 a rather humble word. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. That's a rather humbling word. If, so if you want to get a little perspective of God's orientation, it wasn't because you were so clever and intelligent that God uh, chose you. If anything, his decision was, I'm going to use you in spite of yourself. And to be perfectly frank with you, I'm more and more impressed with the reality that God does most of his work more in spite of us than because of us. But the amazing thing is, give him a little bit, he'll multiply it. And the reality is that in spite of our mixed motives and our folly, he will accomplish his work, and he chooses to accomplish it through us, in spite of the inefficiency of that mode. It is an extremely, rather, it would be a lot easier if he just did it himself. But he chooses to work through weak people. And frankly, I love the fact that the apostles were chosen because they were ordinary men like us in very many ways. They were people who had all their uh, absurd traits and characteristics 
infighting, jockeying for position, all the kinds of things, spiritual density, they were never able to catch on. The women had a better idea what was going on than the men, typically, in Jesus' life. The fact is that he chose those men, though, and uh, this motley crew significantly becomes a group of people transformed from a bunch of obscure Galileans to people who would turn the world upside down. And their ministry continues to reverberate because they were under the tutelage of the master teacher. And I want you to su suggest that one aspect of Jesus' mastery as a teacher is that his leadership is situational. He always adapts, when I say situational leadership, he adapts his leadership to the needs of those people. So that, for example, with these disciples, he instructs them when they're uninformed. He directs them when they're confused, and he prods them when they're reluctant. He does all those things. You see that he also will encourage them when they're kind of downtrodden and dis dis disheartened. And that when they're prepared, when they're ready, he'll give them a lot of tasks and give them specific focal, focused tasks and responsibilities. Then he'll participate with them. He'll guide them through the process, and they'll debrief as they can come back from their assignments. He empowers them, and then he commissions them to be his, his apostles. So at the, at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, that great commission, he's able to now give them a commission, having empowered them, because he not only teaches them, but he also is with them. And that's the beauty of this. Again, the Christian life is not just a set of instructions, but rather it is one who carries us along, so that he not only teaches us, but he also is with us. He empowers us. So there is the radical difference. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It is a person with whom we come into contact, not only to know him intellectually, but to know him personally, experientially. And thus, the more we come to know him, the more we invite him to become manifest through us in the routines and the mundane aspects of life. Every day, you will make a bunch of very apparently mundane decisions. It's my conviction that you'd be prudent, though, to invite him to be a part of your decision-making process so that you would not be foolish enough to suppose that you can manage this yourself. It'd be wiser for you to realize that this one who orders the stars in their courses, names them all by name, and that's a lot of stars, 10 to the 20th. That's 10 with 20 zeros after it, if you want to figure it out. Knows them all by name. Frankly, the world is a good deal more mysterious than we ever thought. This new satellite that's uh, collecting and me measuring with a greater degree of precision than COBE, about uh, 40 times more precise, the background microwave radiation in the cosmos, and as a result of mapping this in the last two years, it's called WMAP. The evidence is now, although this is a changing thing, and keep in mind this is always tentative, but right now the estimate is that of all the matter in the universe, only 4% of it is actually uh, particles. 23% of it is what they call uh, dark matter. I haven't a clue what it is, but they can, and then 73% is what they call dark energy. They haven't a clue as to what that is. It's just a name that they give to, to overcome the, the obvious fact that they haven't a clue as to what 96% of the universe is. 96% now is mysterious, and nobody knows what the stuff is. So the stars and so forth, that's, the only, that's only 4%. In other words, as Alice uh, said in Alice in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser, and so it is. The universe gets more mysterious. Here's a God who holds all this together. We're clueless. 
In fact, the wise thing for you and me would be to admit that we're clueless, even about components of our lives in which we suppose we have control. You don't have control. You may suppose you do. And God may bless you with abundance here and there, and then he can take it away in a day. And then he can, so he can ultimately order your life, and it's wise to follow that. So the master teacher teaches us that effectiveness and leadership is driven by what followers need. And so as we are entrusted with people in our arenas of influence, we need to, to be students of what they need and adapt our leadership styles accordingly. And so in understanding this then, I see Jesus' actions are very consistent, but specifically they're consistently appropriate to the situations involved. And thus... We are called as well to imitate the teacher by becoming servant leaders and transformational leaders. So you're called in your arena of influence, whether a large arena or a small arena, to be a servant leader and to be a transformational leader, one whose impact reverberates ultimately forever because, as we well know, only people and the Word of God go on into eternity. So that you're not just building corporations and empires. What you're really called to do is to build and carve your names not on marble but on hearts. And thus, in doing it that way, now you are creating a true legacy that will endure the ages. Because while th when this is all burned up, they will endure. And so it's a ma matter of a perspective of your investment. Let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 32 to see situational leadership and who God is. We always focus on, first of all, on how it relates to God himself. As I've just said, life is replete with unexpected circumstances and what you might call situational twists. You never know what will come around the corners of life. And for, therefore, your projections will not really carry you reliably very far into the future. But we serve a God who's not surprised by anything, who is a God who actually works in time but transcends its boundaries. Here we have a situation where the people of Israel were on the verge of annihilation as a result of their disobedience, and that God was touched, though, by the intercessory prayer of his servant Moses. In this situation, in Exodus 32 and 33, it's the well-known tale of the uh, golden calf. And in this story, as you know, when, Aaron, when Moses went up to receive the tablets of the law, the, his protracted absence led the people to decide to take matters into their own hands. And what do they immediately do? They can't stand working with the invisible, so they want something palpable, manifest, controllable, measurable, which is what most religion is. Most religion is an attempt to somehow bring God or the gods down to our level so we can manipulate them through sacrifice and sympathetic magic and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, God is not going to be some cosmic uh, slot machine who can be manipulated. He cannot be influenced by our machinations and our manipulations, that we are called to align ourselves with him, not him with us. That's why I say prayer is not so much a matter of trying to convince God to do what we want him to do, as it is a matter of coming into alignment with what his will is and then aligning yourself with it. So that as you're led in prayer, then God will guide your heart and then give you things and then your intercession is powerful because it in fact is in tune with God's desires in your heart, you see. So when Dean makes his prayer, it's a prayer that he is inspired by God to make and thus the intercession becomes something that he's pleased to, uh, to answer. You see that, that idea? Because we are aligning ourselves, but we're not saying, God, I want you to do this. We're really saying, I'm inviting you to pray in me and through me. And prayer is a deep and profound mystery along those lines anyway, in which we're entering into the divine trinity and the fellowship of the trinity. But in doing so, we see a man who intercedes for his people. In any case, they succumbed to the delusion of idolatry because they wanted to construct a God that they could see and measure. 
So Moses' intercession, intercession then was necessary to avert a huge disaster because God was saying, step aside, I'm going to destroy this people and I'll make from you a new nation. By the way, a lesser man might well have been tempted to just come to that idea. Instead, he says, God, but what about your reputation? Notice what he appeals to, God's reputation. Your name would be besmirched among the nations who would say, he brought them out of Egypt and now he let them die in the wilderness. It's insightful and intriguing that Moses is so concerned about God's uh, honor that the honor of his name becomes. I have to ask myself, when's the last time that I was motivated in a decision by the honor of God and the pleasure of God? It's an interesting uh, question. When uh, Moses goes back to the Lord, when he says, let's go first of all, uh, chapter 32, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. In other words, perhaps I can intercede for you. So Moses, verse 31, went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written, which is another amazing statement. He's also identified himself with with his people. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to, to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. When the time comes for me to punish, I'll punish them for their sin. And Mo, the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Verse chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I often add the flea bites, the electric lights, and the ballet tights. But, um, <laughs> but he goes on to say, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey because I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on, on the way. Now when Moses heard these distressing words, when God said, I'm not going to go with you personally, I'm going to send my angel instead. This distressed Moses so much because when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And, they put, and no one put on any ornaments, for the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you're stiff-necked people. If I were to go even with, with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. And so there's this, this, this sense of awe. And in the tent of meeting, I'm jumping ahead here, it's, uh, going down a few verses here. Moses would meet with the Lord face to face, verse 11. And then in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. We need your presence. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me, with your people, unless you go with us? And so this idea here is that uh, Moses intercedes uh, for his people and responds to this negative situation by seeking the pleasure of God and his presence, knowing that God was um, necessary to distinguish his people from all other nations. And if you do not have his immediate presence, then your power is gone and all will be just brought down to the level of the mundane and the meaningless. What I see in Moses, by the way, is the people were running wild, and I see Moses calling them to account. And I see a balance of mercy and discipline, by the way. I see a balance where he shows mercy to the people, intercedes for them, but he also disciplines them as a consequence. So it's a, it's a powerful story. 
that um, we can see illustrates God's perspective, that God himself knows what the future is, holds it in our hand, but still is pleased to respond to the prayers of his people. And there's a deep and profound mystery in God's divine sovereignty, but human responsible interaction. So that life becomes a tapestry that's woven out of God and us, and that our decisions really do matter, that your moral decisions, your choices really do shape reality, and that these are not trivial matters, but they actually have reverberating impacts for eternity. So the small decisions are significant. So that instead of just looking at the big decisions and wrestling with God in prayer about them, more prudent course of action is for us to actually invite him to be involved in the mundane daily decisions. Because frankly, fidelity in the small things will lead to fidelity in the larger. You take, and frankly, within that, may I say, it's not just your actions, but your thoughts. If I focus on my thought life, the actions will follow. So I have to have a renewed mind. And then that will empower a renewed activity and actions. So it's always inside out, never outside in. I go on to a next te- text, and that's going to be found in 1 Corinthians 9, one of my favorite passages as, to, as relates to evangelism and flexibility. Someone once quipped that the last seven words of the church are, we never did it that way before. There's a lot of people resist change, don't they? Uh, somehow we get the, uh, ossified and we become fossils. Even new traditions become uh, ossified, and somehow it's carved in stone. This is the way we always did it. You know? So frankly, even to move this group here from, from, and wrenching us from one place to another, you know, there's a little bit of scary uh, movement in that. And the fact is that God is good, but he also invites us to be flexible and to adapt according to the changing situations. Rather than trying to just manipulate circumstances to suit us, we are called to adapt according to the changing circumstances because we're not really in full control. In fact, control's an illusion. So if I turn to 1 Corinthians 9, I see a man who sees the need to adapt according to the good pleasure of God and the opportunities he's been given. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men. So that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. So he says, I seek common ground without contamination. So I want to have common ground with people. I, I, not, not to the point where I'll be contaminated by uh, compromise. So it's com- common ground without compromising your integrity. But there's a good deal that we can find in common with people who are not followers of Jesus. And that we build relationships on common ground activities. And ultimately that establishes love. And where love is felt, the message is heard. Because you cannot introduce ideological conflict when there's relational tension. So it's needful, therefore, for us to build and to win our right to be heard so that people will then see that we care. The old Dwight Moody statement, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That idea is very true, that they want to see that you genuinely serve them because people can't love, resist being loved and served. After a while, they wonder what's in it for you. And after a while, after you go by the initial skepticism, they begin to see you may be the real deal because 
Don't we become cynics if we're not careful? We see I've ever, these manipulative strategies and, and so forth. And frankly, um, you almost be, want to become cynical. Everybody has a price, we might begin to temp, be tempted to say. I'm here to tell you, not everybody has a price. There are people of integrity and dignity who will not be seduced by the siren calls of this world. They may not be in the majority, but they are there. And when I look at those people that God's placed in my life, I see them as people that I can look to as beacons of light. He's given me mentors in the past and over the years, and I see their fidelity over many, many decades. And it's a powerful thing to see. This thing really is true. We may see people stumble, and we all stumble and make mistakes in many ways, but I still see that there are people who can have a dignity of integrity. And that's what we really look for in relationships at the end of the day. We want a man who's in, who has the integrity. Remember how we defined integrity? In part, it means to have a congruence between your appearance and your, and your reality. That is to say, your persona, your public image, is congruent with what you are when no one looks. That there is a consistency between the seen and the unseen. And so that you are a person who doesn't have hidden agendas. And you're not duplicitous. The opposite of simplicity is duplicity. And duplicitous behavior becomes complicating. But I'm suggesting that a person who has, this, who has the clear eye and the pure heart, that is a person then who has no hidden agendas, but there's a power to that person because you see he's not double-minded and half-hearted, but rather he has a strength of resolve and integrity and character to cause him to be a person who seeks the one thing most needful, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, and treasuring that above all else. He is a man then who has no, nothing to prove, nothing to hide. And such a man then can move with dignity and with composure, with poise and peace in the midst of a stress-filled world. And that to me is a powerful image of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he was like. So he invites us to be people who receive his peace and walk in it and manifest his character and integrity. And I see Paul doing that, approaching each situation in a very case-specific manner. So I see him then seeking to adapt, to become all things to all men so that by all possible means he might save some. This is also intimated in Colossians 4. You don't need to turn there, but just let me read what he said. He said to the Colossians, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, people who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And frankly, one size doesn't fit all. Each person needs something that's different. And you need to be person-specific and adapting and flexible enough so you're not rigidly presenting some canned deal, but rather you actually adapt according to the needs of a person. And there are some people who are going to be touched by or more affected by reasons of the heart and others by more by reasons of the, of the mind. And that's fine. You need to be flexible and adapting to their needs rather than just trying to rigidly make them conform to your idea of what things should be about so that there's a consistency. I also see it in the way he worked with Timothy versus Titus. With Timothy, he had to encourage Timothy because Tim Timothy was diffident, fearful, and not confident. Whereas Titus didn't have that problem. Titus needed to be uh, taught on the area of, of leadership. And so I see even in, their, in his ways of working with them, they adapted according to their unique needs. Third text, the next text, by the way, would be Exodus chapter 18, jumping back there. Just a word, actually it's Exodus 17, verses 8 to 5. 
a quick word about um, the way that God works in unique manifestations. One of the things I'm struck about the way that God works with his people is he never does the same thing exactly twice. It's not the same way. The way he tells them to win battles and so forth, it's never the same. He adapts it and adjusts it and invites us to be creative enough to adapt as well. In this particular case, the Amalekites are defeated by an odd means where Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. (laughs) It's a strange image, that. So when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side. Why did God do that? I do not know. It doesn't make sense to me, because he never did it again. But he did it in this case, and they obeyed him. His hands... Remain steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. To memorialize God's unique deliverances is a wise thing for you to do. I invite you as men to review from time to time his work in your life. So to begin begin to develop a baptized memory, a sanctified memory, a way of looking back and seeing the patterns you didn't see when you were in the fray, but looking back you see his deliverances, you see his creativity, because that gives you perspective in the past that can help you in the present tense, which is exactly what the psalmists did. But in any case, he said, remember, memorialize this. Make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So the point is, he's even making sure Joshua understands this because Joshua is being readied for succession. By the way, a lot of businesses have problems in succession, usually because the big problem is with level four leaders who are so ego involved that they, they can't imagine the business running without them. Jim Collins' level five leader is, combines the paradoxical dimension of humility with a, an intense commitment to the, to the good of the corporate whole. And in doing so, then, they are better equipped to prepare for succession than those who are trying to suppose, make an extension of their own egos. But that's another story. The fact is that um, the best leaders don't treat all followers the same, nor do they treat any single follower in the same manner all the time. We adapt according to the needs of the person. And the final text I'd invite us to look at is going to be found in Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6. We're not going to read that. But I would only mention that text and invite you to read those three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, as an illustration of the diverse numbers of trials and situations and temptations this man experienced and to look at the creative, adaptive ways he used to deal with those kinds of things. He didn't deal with all opposition in the same manner. He demonstrated, but let me say this, Nehemiah was consistent. Not that he did the same thing all the time, but he was consistent in his ability to act in ways that are appropriate to the situations at hand. That's where the consistency uh, lay.